Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. One stolen painting to note is from Manet, a French artist who created Che Tortoni, circa 1880. It's an elegant depiction of a man sketching a half-consumed beer on the table as he calmly looks at his audience. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios. How goes it, Lance? It's going great. Very excited about this episode and very excited to be here nestled in the Empty Frames Crawl Space Studios. So this episode, we have a very cool guy on named Arthur Brand. 
He is the Indiana Jones of the art world, of the art recovery world. If there was a real-life Indiana Jones, he is the closest thing to it. And he's uh, from the Netherlands. Which is just cool, right? Outright. Exactly, which is very badass. And he's got a very good command of the English language as well. It's a very articulated gentleman. Yeah, and a really cool accent, and so we're going to ask him a lot of these questions about who he is, what he does, about the Gardner heist, so you can uh, enjoy this episode and really get a, a full scope of who Art Brand is. Yeah, he's fully invested in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. This is the holy grail to him, and he's not in it for the money. He's honestly in it for the fame. If he's able to solve this, or if he's able to pull things together, pull some strings and contribute to it being solved, that's all he wants. That's, it's, really, it's really because he can now capture the Holy Grail. And listening to him, it seems attainable, doesn't it? Yeah, he goes down a couple of different paths that we weren't really expecting with, uh, with the direction and where the paintings might be and whose hands it might have, uh, certain items might have uh, exchanged through. I got a hopeful feeling when listening to Arthur Brand talk about uh, his work into the Gardner Museum heist. So maybe he's onto something. Right. And it's not like this guy just came in out of the blue. This guy has solved other art heists. He's solved other missing property heists when you look into him. You'll see, even when we started the interview, he starts off by saying, oh, I found this statue that was taken and they had a dinner to commemorate the uh, return of it the night before. So this, this man is all over the globe and doing all sorts of goodwill and and doing doing some some excellent work with just finding missing property okay so follow us on twitter at empty underscore frames we're also on instagram and facebook also youtube so check us out there thank you very much for listening and hope you enjoy this welcome to empty frames arthur brand how are you today um, fine. It's um, it's cold here. I solved the case yesterday, so um, it could be better. It could it could be worse. Okay, you just said it's cold there, so we took care of the polite. Um, how's the weather where you're at? Where are you located? That's my first question. In Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Awesome. Uh, the the national color of uh, the Netherlands is orange. So. Um, but you said something else. But then you said something else, which was uh, you just kind of glossed over it a bit. You just solved the case yesterday. Um, you said that in a way where I would say I got my oil changed yesterday. Well, the thing is, it was not a very big case. It was a statue that was stolen in front of the Hilton Hotel in Amsterdam like 35 years ago. And uh, I managed to get it back. And yesterday was the official that um, they, they placed it back. So we had a dinner afterwards, three hours, quite boring. But, um, well, the piece is there, and uh, everybody lived happily after. Okay, well, Our, congratulations. Congratulations That's... on what you described as a uh, not a big deal. <laughs> Sounds like a big deal to me. So what is it that you do? I'm an art advisor. Most of the work I do is I advise uh, collectors um, what they should buy, what they should not buy. Not many people know that 30% of everything in the art world is fake. So go figure. Uh, we are talking here about tens of billions of dollars each year that are being spent in the art world. And 30% is just not okay. And if you go back after a couple of weeks and say, look, um, I think this piece might be a fake, 
they will tell you, well, we have some um, some small letters in the contract, and uh, it states that after two weeks uh, you are on your own. Oh wow! So, well, I, I can put it in one sentence: uh, the art world is worse than the the trade in, in secondhand cars. It's quite a quite a. There are a lot of comments, a lot of criminality, but it's normal because we are talking here about a trade of billions of dollars. The, I think it's the FBI, FBI or the CIA figured that um, uh, crime and art is the uh, third largest criminal activity in the world. Behind, so, uh, behind drugs and, and weapons? Yeah, and something else. I, I'm not much into that, so, uh, but I know it's the third or the fourth biggest... That's that's crazy. We I think we're gonna before we release it. Maybe we should take a, a social media poll and say you know if you could name like the top four uh, like criminal activities in the world. I, I guarantee people wouldn't say art trade. Yeah, without a Google search. Without yeah, exactly. Is it dangerous what you do? Well, um, I have to deal with criminals. Um, if you look at, at the dark side of the art world, you, you come across uh, ordinary criminals, petty thieves, who normally steal, steal your car, but then think, uh, gee, why don't we steal uh, a painting? But then you have drug dealers who, who are involved, and even terrorist groups like the IRA, uh, the Mafia has done a lot of these uh, heists. And... Um, well, terrorist groups too, like in ISIS, uh, they are digging there in Syria, etc., and they uh, put all these antiquities on the on the black market, and uh, that's one of their sources of income. So yes, you have to deal sometimes with um, well, not uh, it's not like the Salvation Army. You also said that thirty percent of uh, the art that's traded is fake. Of what percentage of that is in museums? Ooh. <laughs> Um, well, there have been some um, investigations. Some people have tried to get access to museum depots to, to find out what's real or not with, with advanced technologies. And sometimes they do get access, and a lot of these pieces turn out to be fake. And I would say that at, in every museum you can find, find them. But you have museums of which experts say uh, 90% is fake. That was 90%. 90, yeah. I know That's... about a museum of, of um, golden artifacts from Latin America of which 90% is fake. That's crazy. When we started doing this, that was one of the um, things that came up, which was really surprising to us. Because when you go to a museum, you see all of these beautiful, beautiful works of art, and then we've we look in the backstory of these pieces of art and we find out that these might have been, you know, obtained in, in shady or illegal fashion to even get it in the museum. So there, there is such a dark side to the art community that, that you talked about. It's a, it's a crazy discovery to make. Yeah, but we are talking about a lot of money and go figure. If, if you have a painting that looks like a Rembrandt and an expert says, look, this piece is worth 1,000 euros because it's, it was made in the time of Rembrandt. But you know that when you can upgrade it to somebody like um, a pupil of Rembrandt, it's going to be like 10, 20,000 or even more. 
And then if you can prove, and I mean prove that some experts say, oh no, but look at it again. The hands were made by Rembrandt, it's worth like uh, one or two million. And if you can find an expert who says, look, this was made by Rembrandt, you have 20 millions. So everybody's trying to upgrade everything. And that's the whole thing the art world is about. Speaking of Rembrandt, so there were three Rembrandts stolen from the gardener. How uh, do you feel a connection to them with uh, with Rembrandt being from? Uh... Absolutely. Um, at the time, I lived in uh, in a street named the Govert Flinkstraat. Govert Flink is one of the painters that uh, one of his paintings was stolen too in this heist. And of course, Rembrandt. Well, Amsterdam Rembrandt. So uh, I, I do feel a connection. Yes. And Vermeer, of course, was a Dutch painter. So um, somehow they took a lot of Dutch paintings. Yeah, which was surprising. And now that we've reached the topic of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, can you take us back to when you first heard of that and what went through your mind uh, at that time? Well, I first heard about that, I think it was in 90, well, a few days after the heist. And as I was living there in the street, of course, I, it caught my attention. And I was still a young boy, so I thought, gee, this is cool. But now, of course, I know this is not cool. This is not something you do. And especially when it takes, uh, we are now 27 years uh, further down the road and still they are lost. So it's nothing cool, it's nothing funny, it's a sad story. And, um, well, that's what I thought at the time. But of course, later I got myself into the art world and I started to investigate art crime. And well, this is the top of the bill, of course. It's, we are talking about half a billion. You said in your uh, TEDx talk that you were approached by a gentleman who um, wanted you to help you help find the Holy Grail. Uh, is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist sort of the Holy Grail? Absolutely. It's the biggest case, uh, and not only we are not only talking about money. Of course, half a billion—it's—it's it's crazy. But we are talking here about Vermeer, one of, in my opinion. But I'm Dutch, so excuse me for that. But I think it's—it's it's one of the best painters ever. He only made 34 paintings. Um, Rembrandt is only seaside. It's—it's it's a very important piece in his his oeuvre because why didn't um, Rembrandt painted more seascapes? So probably when you look at this painting, uh, you look at a painting that Rembrandt was not very fond of because he never tried it again. So, and then of course Rembrandt. So it's, it's horrible. It's really a loss of culture, this. Did it uh, strike you as especially brutal? And I probably already know the answer to this. Did it strike you as especially brutal how the Rembrandt, the storm on the Sea of Galilee was taken from the frame, how they cut it out of the frame? No, I, I wouldn't expect anything else because it's always like this. Right. They they cut it in half or whatever. It's we are not we are not talking here about rocket scientists. It's uh, these are people that are, you know, when you see a Rembrandt, a small painting of Rembrandt at the wall, you think, oh my God, this is Rembrandt. Look at the light. Who who is portrayed there? But they don't look like that. Right. They look at this painting and they think this is a ten million dollar bill. They don't even see what what it is. It's, for them, it's money. I, I think they worry more about their car than uh, about these paintings, uh, how they are being stored or whatever. They have no idea. 
no clue. Is cutting them from their frames a common thing that you come across? Oh yes, it's really? uh, it's well, when you when you take them with their frames, uh, you have a problem. Because how how are you going to transport them? You you can of course, but it's easier to to cut them off and to roll them up and to walk away like if you're walking with a tapestry or something. It's it's crazy, but that's how these people think. I see. Yeah, I guess it makes sense in the um in the basicness of it, you know. But it, you would have had to have stolen paintings before to even understand that, right? That, yeah, and. Um, not many people steal paintings and do it again. Well, we we had Miles Connor, of course, but um, it's they soon find out. You know, they're going to steal these paintings, and the next day they wake up and they think, "Oh my God, we are rich. We're gonna find some rich buyer who wants to buy it, like a kind of Doctor No from the James Bond movie." Right. And then they they look under their bed and they see their painting and they think, "Yes, we did it." And then they put on the, the television and they see their painting in color on all the networks and expert, experts like me telling, look, forget about it. You never get rid of this. Now, why would they not be able to get rid of it? Well, um, it all started more or less in, in the 60s. You had this Dr. No movie of James Bond. And uh, just a year before filming that movie, a Goya was stolen from the National Gallery in London. So the producer thought it to be a good idea that when Bond enters uh, the house of Dr. No, he sees this painting. Of course, it was a copy, but he sees this painting and he said, oh, I wondered where this painting was. So a lot of simple minds think that there are really some billionaires around there who would love to, to have a stolen Van Gogh at their wall. Who would, who would want... Uh, one of the things about art is you want to you want to love it, but you also want to show it to your friends. It's it's far more it's it's far more beautiful to to share your feelings, to tell your friends, look what I bought, isn't it beautiful? And we are talking here about people that are so rich. Why should they walk this risk? Just go to an auction house and buy one. Is there a specific time where you were officially? committed to investigating the heist? Yeah, I um, in 2003, I met Michel van Rijn, a very famous Dutch art uh, criminal. He also worked for the police during that time, but um, no, he worked for the police at that time. But uh, van Rijn had been a suspect in the case, and he knows a lot of people that have been, have been uh, involved somehow. I met van Rijn, and uh, he talked about it. And he said that he had been a suspect. He was uh, uh, interrogated by the FBI. So uh, that's when I really, it really caught my attention. And from that moment on, I thought, well, if someday these pieces come back, it will be good for everybody. And if I can solve it, well. Now, uh, Van Ryan is a really fascinating guy. He, he just started off sort of on a whim, right? stealing paintings? Well, Van Rijn was more or less, um, he dealt in stolen uh, art and he gave orders to uh, forgers to fake art. And in the 19th, one of the head of Scotland Yard said about Van Rijn, Van Rijn is involved in 90% of all the art crimes in the world and he even wants us to believe that he's also involved in the other 10%. 
<laughs> so that tells you a little bit how his mind works. Right. But he was a very big player in this in this game, and uh, I walked around uh, him for a couple of years, and uh, he taught me a lot of things. Was uh, there anything specific about the Gardner Museum that he said to you that stood out that you can prove as uh, maybe he had some knowledge of it? No, I think he had no knowledge of it, I'm sure. Huh, okay. What is your theory? Well, let's set something straight. Um, there are a lot of things they say about this theft. Like, for example, um, you always read about it. More valuable artworks were untouched. Why didn't they steal the other paintings that were worth far more? Right. You read it every time. But I think it's a stupid uh, remark but because these guys went away with half a billion. How much can you spend in your lifetime? Right. How much more? How much more do you want? Yeah, it's it's like look, everything there is is gold. Um, so they took thirteen pieces worth half a billion, and then everybody tries to find a clue in that they didn't steal two billion. But they just went in and stole thirteen pieces, and they got out with thirty million. Uh, with uh, 30 pieces worth half a billion, I would say that's enough. So I don't think it's there is some lead in that. That's the first thing I would like to say. Okay. And then what you read is these thieves were amateurs. Well, they, they were not because they did the job, didn't they? So um, these guys got away with it. They stole for 500 million... So they were not amateurs. These guys were professionals. Um, they had access to police uniforms. I don't know how easy it is in the United States, but in Europe it's not that easy to get access to an official police uniform. And um, I think they were quite professional. I don't think this was their first um, criminal activity. I think they were quite... Um, quite professional in that way. Yeah, I would I would love to be called a, a non-professional at something that I was successful at for 28 years. Exactly. I, I wish still, I could be that unprofessional. Oh, but these guys were, if they are alive, they are reading this and they smile at each other. They think, what are they talking about? Ta calling us amateurs. We're not amateurs and they are not. I guess that I guess that works in their favor if if you've done something and people are assuming you're an amateur and they're waiting for you to screw up and you're really you know as professional as it comes you just you just do what you've been doing for the past three decades. Well, that would be normal. That's a normal thought, but um, I have to deal a lot with criminals and most of them, not all, but most of them want to have the credits. You see it with serial killers, uh, some of them really want to have the credits. Some of them even confess to more killings than they really have done. So um, that's a thing we can talk about later uh, when it comes to the mafia, which might have been involved. Um, but there was another thing I want to set straight. Everybody always say that Abbott was involved, the guard. And um, I know Abbott is listening to this. I can guarantee you that. Um, I talked to him. Not very long, but um, he knew who I was, and I, of course, knew know who he is. So um, I'm not 100% sure if he was involved. Maybe he was, but they always say, look, there must have been some inside knowledge. What kind of inside knowledge? That it was full of paintings? We know that. <laughs> 
it's not that they used that they uh, went behind uh, through the back door. No, they dressed up as as police and they went in. I tell you one thing: when I was a young kid, I would have opened the door for the police. I think most people would have done that. You see two police officers in uniform, and um, well, you open the door. So I'm not saying Abbott is not involved, but everybody's so sure about him being involved. I don't know. And it's not that I say this because I know he's listening, but I think, imagine that he was not involved. Okay, yeah. And he has to read all these things. It must be a horror for him. Yeah, exactly. 100% agree. We agree. We we definitely try to take an open mind approach uh, with him, um, you know, being the inside source. And a lot of the times that we say... Or an inside source. Right. A lot of the times when we say something that makes it seem like we're, we're basically answering the questions that the, the community who listens to the show uh, has. So we, we address the questions that they have and we, I mean, we do our best to you know, critically to dissect them and hopefully find some sort of answer. But we, we agree with you. What, what, what is it about the job that makes it look like, or people assume that it's an inside job? Obviously there are paintings in there and um, people look at it nowadays in 2018 and they look at it and think about it with the technology we have today, they didn't have that in 1990. You know, there wasn't no. any alarm out to the police. Like, I mean, with the, um, with the motion detectors, that was just an internal thing. Uh, they had one button that went to directly to the police. So what are you yeah. going to do when the police show up? You're not, you probably won't as a, as a kid think I'm going to call the police again. Yeah. When you no. boil it down, there isn't much inside knowledge needed to have pulled off what they did. That was a really much better way to say what I just said in a, in a really long-winded way. <laughs> no, but uh, I think that it really we should give him some credit, uh, Abbott. Uh, everybody's picking on him, and, uh, and I'm not saying I'm 100% sure he was not involved somehow. We would love to talk to him. We know that he probably has obligations that are preventing him from doing that, but uh, yeah, if, if, if we're confident he's listening, um, yeah, we'd love to talk to him. Yeah, he, of course he has an interesting story. You know, whatever he says can be used against him, you know, and right. uh, he has to be very careful to his, his whole life. Everybody, if he's going to for a new job uh, and they will Google his name, they think, oh, my God, what is that? And imagine, imagine that he really is innocent. Mm -hmm. What a horrible thing for him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's go further down the road. Let's do it. Let's um, let's let's go to Ireland, if that's OK. Yeah, that's fine. Let, let, let me first tell you one more thing about this, this whole mob connection. Oh, yeah, please do. We have all these, uh, and indeed, I, I can tell from firsthand that, um, from my experience, that the mafia indeed, in many cases, is involved in art theft. And it's not so much that they do the job themselves. Um, it's like uh, small-time criminals, they steal some paintings and they pass it on to the mafia. We had this famous robbery in the Netherlands, two Van Gogh paintings uh, that were stolen in 2002 uh, by a small-time criminal, Octave. His name is, uh, I know him personally because he's from Amsterdam. And um, he sold it to a mobster. And the mobster held on to it for like 15 years and he used it as a bargain uh, in exchange for a penalty reduction with justice. So it is true that the mafia 
has been involved in many of those things. But then we have all these names uh, popping up in this story, like uh, Donati and uh, this Gentile guy. And if I have learned one thing from the Mafia, not only from people I have met in negotiations, and when you read about the Mafia, it's like in the criminal world, people talk a lot. It's not that you, that you can keep a secret for a long time. Uh, I just wrote a book, I think it was from Patrick Nee, one of, one of Whitey Bulger's uh, uh, helpers, and he, he said something like, um, the only offer you can't refuse these days, this famous mafia quote, you cannot, they make you an offer you can't refuse. The only offer you can't refuse these days is not made by the mafia themselves anymore, but by the police to the mafia to get them to talk in exchange for a penalty reduction. You have all these mobsters writing books. Um, you see them in, in interviews. You see them in, in, in on television. And if the mafia would have been involved, I'm sure that in these 27 years, somebody would have talked to the police for a lesser penalty or because they, they have to set a record straight. It's in the criminal world, people do not trust each other because they know that somebody will talk sooner or later. Your friend of today is your enemy of tomorrow. So I think that maybe the mafia was not involved. Just due to the time frame, because of how the mafia has evolved in 28 years, inevitably, I mean, it seems like they almost came close with some lower level uh, gang related pe- um, individuals, but nothing ever came to fruition from that. But overall, the, the point is, if there was a mafia connection somewhere in the past 28 years, somebody would have said something to to reduce a sentence or to lessen um, any penalty that they might Absolutely. have for another crime. You see it all of the time. Uh, every day you can read in the newspaper. Well, every right. day, but every month you can read a newspaper about a mobster talking to uh, to the police. And that's the, the biggest blow for the mafia for the last 20, 25 years. So and they talk about murders, etc. Why not talk about this? So... So your your opinion is that the the mafia was not involved at all, or it maybe they were involved in the beginning and it just left their hands. No, no. Um, normally they are not involved in the beginning. Normally they are small time criminals who do such a thing and then they sell it to the mafia. I see. But in this case, I think it's it's not very plausible. And and this whole Robert Gentile story. Um, just think about it logically. Of course, the FBI has good reasons to believe that he was involved because. Uh, Gentile made notes about the paintings. Uh, he told other criminals, I have access to these paintings. But I, I, I know criminals who ensure me that they know who killed uh, Kennedy. It's ridiculous. They always want to, to, to show that they are bigger than you think. And uh, in this case, let's think logically. This is an, a guy from Italian origin. He has grandchildren. He rides along in a wheelchair. They offered him to get out of jail and to collect the 10 million. Do you know anybody who would stay in jail, not seeing his family, in a wheelchair, if he could get 10 million and walk out free? Right. The guy is coming to the end of his life, and the last thing he wants is probably to die in prison. Exactly. And um, it's also a sad story. 
I do understand the FBI because uh, Gentile made himself quite suspicious. But um, the same for him. If he really has nothing to do with it, it's another tragedy in this whole story. The bottom line is that something terribly went wrong. You don't go out and steal paintings worth 500 millions and 27 years later there's still no trace of these paintings. Why do you steal them? You steal them to sell them, to get insurance money of, or to use them as a bargain in some kind of criminal case. That's why people steal art. So something along the way has gone terribly wrong. But what went wrong? That's the whole thing. Were these guys so afraid? Maybe White, Whitey Bulger was asking around and said, who did it? I'm going to kill them. I don't want any more um, uh, surveillance because the police will think I did it. Who did it? I didn't give permission. Maybe the guys were afraid and they uh, buried it or they um, burned it, whatever. Or maybe these guys were killed because some of these suspects I named before have been killed, like uh, Di Muzio, uh, well, I didn't mention him, but Donati was killed. But something terribly went wrong. What went wrong? For Gentile, who's in prison still, do you think like th- there's still that amount of danger out there? And if he were to give up the location of these paintings, the the mafia or whoever was connected could come after his family members, for <coughs> example? No, because uh, first of all, uh, the mafia normally does not go after your family members. That's one of the rules they stick to. And the second thing is that um, if Gentile would talk, other mobsters have talked, they have put uh, other colleagues in jail for murder. They talked about murder. In this case, what what can happen? Nothing. Um, the theft itself is not uh, punishable anymore. It's too long ago. So uh, if these people normally talk about, they give away their colleagues for murder, and why wouldn't they do it for this? Because it's not like somebody is sitting on these paintings waiting for a right moment to give them back. We had a ten, we have a ten million dollar reward. Right. Ten million. Not only that, but I mean, it's not punishable anymore. And if you're able to produce the, their whereabouts, I mean, you get a book deal and a movie deal right there. You, it's. I mean, even if you don't get the reward, you get you get fame and and money in another way. Absolutely. And so that's the whole thing. And one thing I've learned with my dealings with criminals is in the beginning, when you when you sit at the table with them, they say, I'm not going to tell you anything. But after 25 minutes, you know, all right. It's like a bunch of old ladies, a tea club, and they chat and they chat because they have nothing to do during the daytime. They sit and watch that it comes uh, that the night falls in and they can start to work. But at daytime, they are talking and talking, making themselves bigger, bigger. And, you know, also with all these names that have been mentioned, you know how it goes. One criminal says to the other after such a uh, heist, gee, maybe uh, this or that guy was involved. The guy he tells it to, tells it to another guy, and he leaves the word maybe out of it. So he says, this guy told me that he was involved. And it becomes bigger and bigger. And even some criminals... When being asked, were you involved? They say, well, I'm not telling you, because they look bigger. And 
But I think that after 27 years, with all the names that have been mentioned, why aren't the pieces back? 10 million rewards. So maybe we are on a totally wrong trail. A part, of course, if the people that were involved were killed, of course, because they cannot talk anymore. But uh, maybe we, ha we have it wrong from the beginning. You see it also with a lot of, of criminal cases. The other day, this, this um, um, Golden Gate uh, serial killer was uh, caught in the United States. Nobody would have ever thought it was a former policeman. They all thought uh, it must be some crazy kind of guy. And they had all these theories, and now we see a normal guy. Well, not normal. It, from, the, from the outside, it's a normal guy. A former policeman. So maybe this whole story, we are wrong from the beginning. That lost in translation um, example that you used where they dropped the word maybe, uh, you know, that's important. That's that's a, after 27 years, 28 years, how many of those maybes have been dropped from the conversation to the point where you don't even recognize the, the origin of, of the concept of what they were trying to communicate in the first place. Absolutely. And then you have these people who wants to make themselves more interesting. Something terribly went wrong, but what went wrong? And maybe we are on the wrong lead because 27 years. In 2017, you were interviewed by WBZ in Boston, and you mentioned that you were negotiating with people to return the gardener art. Uh, can you give us an update on that? Yeah. Um, I could tell you maybe a little bit more. How many people are listening, guys? Just us three. <laughs> Just us uh, three. Okay, then I can speak openly. The IRA, of course, from the beginning has been a suspect. Nobody thought that they did the heist, but as Boston was and is um, more or less an Irish town. Um, and we know that the Boston Mafia transported arms to, to Ireland. And the IRA is known for stealing art or, or at least buying stolen art to use it as a bargain. We had a big, in 1974, uh, there was a raid, a, a heist at Rustborough House in, in Ireland, Vermeer was stolen in that in that uh, case too, and it was done by a member of the IRA. Later, the IRA said, "Well, we didn't order her to do this, but it was a member of the IRA who did it." So the IRA has a history of being involved in stolen art, and um, Boston is one of the most Irish towns of the United States. And we know there was a smuggling route from um, Boston to, to Ireland. And um, I cannot tell you the whole story, but we got some information out of Ireland that there might be people, former IRA members, who know more. And the funny thing is, after I did this interview, I was interviewed, of course, by Irish reporters. And many of them said, look, we have been investigating the IRA for 20 years. And once in a while, somebody told us about the Isabella Stewart Gardner theft. Some, some, sometimes people said within the IRA, well, the rumor goes that we have them. We don't know, but the rumor goes. And they have printed this too. So for journalists in, who were covering the IRA, is nothing new to hear this. They have heard it within the IRA too. There have been always talk within the IRA, and you must not see the IRA as a group of people who know each other. It's like cells. 
But in all these years, there have been rumors within the IRA saying our top leaders do have access to these paintings. So then we started to ask, ask around in former IRA circles with some colleagues of mine. I cannot tell you the names. But um, then we were contacted by quite a renowned former IRA member who said, well, if you do us a favor, we might help you to recover these paintings. Because indeed, there are a lot of rumors within our group that the paintings have been shipped to Ireland. So if you do us a favor, we will do you a favor. This was something that came from a top, you said a former top IRA member directly to, to you and your people? It's the Saudama Brigade that was more or less the, the most important brigade within the IRA. The toughest guys were in the Saudama Brigade. Can I ask a quick question? How does one from the IRA contact you and how do you react when you get contacted? Do they shoot you an email or do they call you or is it like a secret meeting in a parking garage? <laughs> well, there was a middleman, two middlemen and um, it's um, I have to be careful now um, you send each other regards to the middleman and you say uh, nice to meet you and uh, tell me your story and what do you want us to do for you so um, within the IRA, we had, we had to send a guy who was from Ireland, of course. You cannot send guys like you or like me uh, into, uh, into uh, the IRA country. Right. You have to know the rules. You have to know their, their language. So, and the other middleman is somebody I cannot name, and uh, those two were in the middle. But um, we are still working on that. It's at the point now where you believe that this is credible enough where you would risk your personal safety? Because I don't know, I hear IRA and I think your personal safety. Um, but you you think it's uh, that is uh, credible enough for you to continue the IRA angle? Absolutely. But okay. you must understand, uh, your question is a very normal question. I, I, they, ask, they ask me it all of the time. But uh, it's not like the mafia or um, drug criminals or these group like the IRA, are, it's not like they are serial killers. They walk around and think, who are we going to kill today? You really must cause, be a problem for them before they kill you. So as long as I or other people do not make it too hard for them, you are quite safe. Okay. It's, it's, it's normal people, but criminal people. Of course they kill and of course they do horrible things. But they they do it with a reason that they see. It's not they not kill at random. So it's not that I uh, look over my shoulders the whole day. And apart from that, we we have a deal. Right. So on the on the heels of that really good answer, I'm going to ask a really stupid question that you can't answer. I bet. Um, what what of the um, material that was stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? do you believe is in Ireland? Well, the rumors go that some of the pieces have end up in Ireland. It's not 100% sure, but I would say um, this lead is credible enough to at least follow it. Um, okay. As said from the beginning, the IRA has been mentioned. Reporters have told me that within the IRA, it has been the talk of town for 20 years. 
And the IRA has a history of this, and there were connections between Boston and the IRA. So let's give it a try. Right. Is it um is it mostly Vermeers that that they have, or do they have all of it, or you don't know? Um, I have heard, but this is this is not credible information. But uh, um, some of the Rembrandts should be there, and some other paintings. The Vermeer has not been mentioned. But again, it's not solid proof, but uh, I, I would say let's go for it. What do we have to lose? I'm actually kind of surprised that you, even though it's not credible, that the Vermeer hasn't been mentioned because that is the – anytime we're talking with somebody about this and they talk about them being in Ireland, people always say, well, it must be the Vermeer because they had a reputation for hoarding, uh, stealing and hoarding Vermeer, stolen Vermeers. Absolutely, absolutely. Which, which and- is – that's surprising to me that – that wasn't mentioned in the information that you received, even though you're not sure if it's credible. That almost no, makes maybe, it feel more maybe credible. Maybe somebody to told to somebody, we have them, the Vermeer, except for the Rembrandts. And then the next guy uh, forgets about it and they say, they have only the Rembrandts, but not the Vermeer. I see. That's how it, how it goes in these uh, these circles. Was this, um, is this part of a connection with Whitey Bulger? In the beginning, I thought Whitey Bulger must be involved if the IRA has them right now. But then again, Bulger is in prison. And he could have some profits out of telling what happened. So then the question is, why doesn't Bulger speak? Well, there are two reasons for that. Probably, oh, he doesn't know. Oh, he does know. But if he says, well, I sold them to those and those guys within the IRA, what's the proof? He probably will not get a lesser sentence because they say, yeah, well, uh, do you have some proof, Mr. Belgium? Because um, we need to get these pieces back. No, no, I just met them and I sold them to them. So maybe he was involved, but has no credible proof. Or maybe he just didn't know. And maybe the IRA, the, the guys who stole these paintings, maybe they sold it to the IRA through different channels. It's not like Whitey Bulger was their man in, in, in the United States. So everything is possible. But that's the, the whole thing in this story. With every name that pops up, there are more questions than answers. If you go back to the, the core of this whole story, we agreed, I think, that something terribly went wrong. Right. That's for sure. I also think that some very big criminals were not involved because if the mafia was involved, somebody would have talked right now. So two guys steal these paintings and for whatever reason, they bury them or they destroy them. That would be a plausible um, conclusion. But even then, I think that there is somebody out there Maybe an old lady, maybe a son or a daughter. There is somebody out there who knows. Yep. And then the next question comes. How do we convince this person to talk? Probably, imagine that uh, some old lady knows that the paintings were buried or burned. She cannot go for them. So what has she to win in this situation? Nothing. And apart from that, um, this old woman, let's call her an old woman, is afraid that she will be arrested. She will be in the press and she thinks, no, keep your mouth shut and that's it. And that's the reason why 
I tried to communicate last year in the press. I said, look, I'm sure that you can go to the FBI. You can go to the museum. I believe them on their words. They have said, look, we are not after you. We are not after anybody anymore. Please bring them back. There is even money for you. I believe them. But I also said, in the criminal world, they will never believe the FBI. So if you want to do the right thing, but you are afraid to go to them, go to me. And I can protect your identity. But even that was not enough. So I'm sure that somebody out there knows something. And I hope she or he is listening. And that something I am saying or you are saying will convince her to do the right thing. But she hasn't. She or he hasn't done it for all those years. So it's going to be difficult. Yeah, one of the most tempting things that I keep uh, thinking about is if I had any knowledge of these these uh, missing uh, you know art pieces, uh, the eagle finial and the uh, the Ming Dynasty vase. The eagle finial is the only piece that the museum is still offering a reward on if brought back individually from yeah. everything else. A hundred thousand dollars, I think, and. That's a hundred thousand dollars that you didn't have before. If you have any knowledge of this one, this one piece, guys, let's be honest. This is, of course, a trick of the police. They say, "Come forward with this piece. We give you the money." But the criminals are not idiots. They know as soon as we come forward with that, gee, uh, they will come to our house and they look in our garden. They look in our toilets. We will we will be under surveillance for the next two hundred years. It's not, they are not that stupid. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I'm Don't. sorry I'm sorry to reveal this, but in the criminal underworld, this is common sense, of course. Don't tell them. Don't tell them, <laughs> Mr. Well, Brand. I'm not telling anything new for these, for these guys, believe me. Little do you know, one guy was on his way to the police with the eagle finial. <laughs> he had it in his, his earbuds, and he was listening to empty yeah. frames, and he was like, no! Like, oh, I'll, I'll put this right back on top of my flagpole then. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's obvious that nobody came forward because they 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 see this trick. It's not, and, and maybe the pieces do not uh, exist anymore. And and why would somebody go to the police and tell? I know that my brother did it, and he burned it. Right. Yeah. What? Yeah. Exactly. If there's no proof of it, what's the use of putting it out there other yeah. than you're an idiot? But I I still think um, that this person should come forward. If it's to me or to you or to the FBI, I don't care. But do the right thing. Witnesses also who see terrible things happened and they don't talk because they are afraid. Right. Yeah. Yep. Is the museum aware of your lead? Yes. And they said they covered it already and uh, they are not interested anymore in the IRA angle. They are now focusing on this Philadelphia, what was it? Philadelphia connection. And um, they are focusing entirely on Gentile, which is their good right because Indeed, Gentile made some stupid remarks, etc. But common sense says me that Gentile would have talked already years ago to save his ass. Yep. And he didn't. And the guy is literally with one foot in the grave right now and the other Absolutely. on a banana peel. It's like, what are they? what's going to happen when he dies? Is it going to go to another? Like, is if he has information, is that going to another generation of, of gangsters or is it going to die with him? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. And and we always think that the mafia has all these codes. But for 10 million euros, 10 million dollars, they betray each other with a blink of an eye. Absolutely. Um, I want to get back real quick to the, um, to the eagle finial. 
and the the vase. What do you make of those items being stolen separate from paintings? Well, these guys, as said, they were professionals, but they don't know anything about art. They knew that everything they would grab there is worth something, and they probably thought the eagle was solid gold. And they thought, well, we will melt it down, and that will uh, that will give us some cash. Yeah, the, pa- the paintings you have to, to negotiate, you cannot uh, melt them down. But uh, these guys were looking there, and um, they thought, gee, that's gold. Jesus. Interesting thought, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's the most reasonable explanation that we've you know speculated on, uh, and I'd like to put it out there to any business in Boston at that time that was specialized in gold sales or melting down precious metal. Um, if yeah. you happen to find, you know, yeah. an eagle no, finial sure sitting they, on your shelf, they had a big laugh afterwards. The one guy said to another, to the other, "You went all the way up to get this golden eagle, and it turns out to be uh, what is it, bronze?" Right, right. So uh, I think they laughed about that. Right. They probably could have scored more hitting like a uh, a warehouse that was being demolished and getting some copper piping. Absolutely. By the way, if anyone hasn't seen your TED talk, your TEDx talk, it's really good. You said in there that there were two types of people in the art market. And uh, what are those two types of people? I found I found I found that very fascinating. The honest ones in the comment. You see, it's the, the art world. Just Google it. Art forgery and um, art theft, it's, well, I would say it's hilarious. It is hilarious, but of course it's also sad because a lot of a lot of people are duped by this. Uh, but um, there are not many honest people in the art world. And of course there are honest people, but even they make mistakes. And it's not their fault, of course, but even they make mistakes. And that's why the art world is such a... Well, it's slippery, it's, it's dangerous, it's, um, they fool you with their blue eyes and they tell you stories and most of the time it's completely bullshit. What are the incremental things that must happen in order to make progress with the lead or leads that you have? Yeah, well, uh, when I tell these stories, there is some contradiction in it because I said something terribly went wrong. Um, somebody would have talked right now if it would be in the hands of the mafia or they would have uh, used it for something. In the case of the IRA, it's different. The IRA, um, it's not that they have uh, lack of money there. They really want to use it as a bargain, if they have it. But after 97, you had a Good Friday agreement and the IRA was dismantled and most prisoners were released. So that could be the reason that it's still in some barn in Ireland, because they also have no idea what to do. They know one thing for sure, that if they go to the police and, and try to get the $10 million, pooh, they, well, they, they won't trust that they will get the $10 million because, look, they are former IRA members, and there are a lot of questions to be asked to them. So maybe it's rotten away somewhere in a barn in Ireland. That would make sense, in my opinion. But uh, the things that should be done right now I, it, to make this... Uh, well, I have. they have asked me to do them a favor. It's a legal favor, by the way, because people might think, oh, my God, he's doing a favor to former IRA members. Uh, what is, is he up to? But I've talked to it with um, with people from law enforcement agencies, and they said... You can do this. It's a very decent request. Okay. So um, 
I'm going to uh, to do that and try to be successful in that and uh, then see if the other party keeps his word. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, keep us updated. Yeah, please. fire us uh, fire us an email and um and depending on what you hear or what you can disclose, you're welcome to be back here on the show anytime you'd like. I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, but one one more thing I would like to say is um but if the, the IRA does not have them, if something terribly went wrong, and if somebody is listening, an old lady, an old man, if you know something, please contact me, contact you guys. We protect your identity, but even if the paintings do not exist anymore, tell us the story, because so much money is lost with all these investigations. The FBI is still searching for it. Let's... Nobody will be prosecuted anymore if, if you have nothing to do with it. Come forward, go for it, do the right thing to do. Because there are many stories, I can tell you a lot of them, of people who knew such things and on their deathbed wanted to confess, but it was too late. There are many stories about that. Do you find it ironic that you appraise art and look for stolen artwork for a living and your name is art? <laughs> No, I really think it's, um, many people, uh, they say your name must be fake, even criminals. They say, what's your real name? And then I have to show my passport because m- many of my emails, I, I sign with art, with a short form, art. And then people think it's some kind of stupid joke or that I'm, I'm undercover or something, but it really is my real name. That would be amazing if you were, if you were actually undercover and you're like, Oh yeah, art. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a really incognito name. Yeah, super incognito. Yeah, it's very <laughs> Empty Frames is a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom with original music by Jared Jansen. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at empty underscore frames. I really don't care. That's my prerogative They say I'm nasty But I